0: I think two Sundays ago, where we actually walked through chapter 25 of Job, where Bildad highlighted, you know, things like the sovereignty of God and human depravity, and he he spoke truth about those doctrines and subjects. It's just pure truth. It's such a wonderful chapter. Uh, but you know, of course, his his motive was off, and his whole purpose for preaching those doctrines uh, was in an attempt to absolutely obliterate. Job's self confidence in his own righteousness and in his innocence. And, and when I say that, I, I don't mean that, I don't think that Job necessarily had a prideful view of himself, but Job knew that he had not committed the sins that his friends were trying to convince him of. He knew that he was blameless and innocent before God. And so he had that kind of, you know, knowing himself, he had that kind of confidence, like, well, I know the truth about what I've been doing and who I am. You guys don't. But he had this kind of confidence and he wanted to take his case before the seat of God if he could somehow. He, he prayed for that and wished for that and wanted to do that. And what does Bill Dad do? He just comes in and calls him a maggot and a worm. He says, you're no better than a maggot or a worm. And, you know, God doesn't deal the way that you want to be dealt with. You think that God's going to give you grace and mercy. He's not going to deal with you in that way if you get to deal with Him at all. You're nothing more than a maggot and a worm. So so chapter 25 is full of truth, but it was given to Job for the wrong reasons without the love, without the compassion and all that, but it's still an amazingly truthful section with the exception of the very last line, verse 6, where he calls him a maggot and a worm, Um, although um, that certainly feels true at times because I felt kind of... Maggoty with COVID, Uh, but um, it's not true of us. We're image bearers, and you would. What would you think would be Job's initial response to Bill Dad's very hateful, mean speech? Do you think that it brought him joy, or do you think that it aggravated him, made him angry, um, discouraged him, and and he 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 is. We can tell. In, in this next section in chapter 26, that, that Job is aggravated, especially in the first few verses. Um, it, it, the speech had no compassionate qualities to it. We know this. And, and Job's response to it is, is one of, of initially aggravation. He's offended by Bildad's final speech. And the funny thing is, is that I would think that what would would have offended Job would have been, you know, you're a maggot, you're a worm, you're this, you're that, but it's not the name calling that actually offends Job. Um, It could have been partly the misuse of Scripture because obviously Bildad was misusing Scripture. He was using it to beat somebody up and that's not the intended purpose of Scripture. It's intended to convict, to build up, not to tear down. And uh, so, it's, it's partly that, but there's something else there that's offensive. And I, w- I would simply just say, by way of introduction, in the next section, which is obviously chapter 26, this is where Job unleashes his first response to Bildad's final speech. He actually responds to Bildad's final speech in 26, 27, and 28. So, he gives a pretty lengthy response, but t- chapter 26 represents the, the, the first portion of his response. And hopefully you've already taken your Bibles and you're there. Job 26. Bruce just uh, read it for us a moment ago. I'm going to give you three C's, three C's. So we can pick up where we left off on the 2nd. It was January 2nd when we left off and we can look at our first C. And it's really just Job's critique. He critiques Bildad and the other two And uh, we see this in verses 1 through 4. He's criticizing, ultimately he's criticizing Bildad and the other friends for once again failing to ease his pain and suffering. You remember, this is why they had come. These guys had traveled like a hundred miles to go and, and show some compassion and sympathy ...to their suffering friend. And so that was the whole purpose of their coming. This is expressed in Job chapter 2, verse 11. And yet, once they arrived and started listening to Job bemoan his status and situation and suffering... ...they immediately kind of switched into a corrective kind of bludgeoning conviction kind of (laughs) speech... I, they just really just started to, to beat him up. And we've said this over and over and over, but even though their speeches had a lot of truth in them, um, it was given for the wrong reasons, with the wrong motive, and for the wrong purpose. And, you know, it, it's kind of really sad when, when people do what the friends did, and that's where they turn Scripture into a kind of hate speech towards somebody. And uh, that's, that's essentially what they did. So Job is right out of the gate. He's upset that, you know, you guys said you came to show me compassion and to help me, and now you're calling me names, and you, you don't, you're not comforting me. And I think that's the first reason why he's offended here, their failure to bring comfort. They failed to sympathize and comfort him. And then in verse 1, Job launches into his initial response and it says Job answered them and then from that point what he essentially does is lays out his angry critique in like five poignant questions. He asks them essentially asks them five things and they're poignant probing questions that are that are grounded in sarcasm. He's angry And here here are the questions, like question one, what he's essentially asking in verse 2a. How have you, through all these speeches, how have you helped him who has no power? Who's the one who has no power? Him, right? He's been robbed of his wealth, of his family, of his possessions, of his strength. He has wounds all over him. He has worms all over him, probably... uh, felt worse than I did because one of the side effects of COVID is that it just totally saps your strength. I don't know if you who got it too, if that was one of the things that you felt, but you have this kind of weakness about you. You don't feel like you can even stand up for long. And and he just was just, all of his strength and, and his health and vitality and vigor and everything else had just been taken away from him. And he just asks a simple question. How are you, through what you're saying, helping the one here, me, who has no strength, who has no power? You see the sarcasm there? It's there. And then he backs it up with the second question, and we see this in verse 2b. How have you saved the arm that has no strength? Now, he's not talking about salvation, like literal salvation. He's just talking about You've come down here to kind of, to try to help assist and save me from from my misery in a sense. That's why you've come, not in a savior way, but in a good friend way. You you say that you've come to do that, but how have you in fact saved me? How have you helped me? How have you been a blessing to me? How have you sympathized? How have you shown me compassion? How have you... um, rescued me, in a sense, from all of this suffering and pain through your speeches, through what you said. How are you saving the one who has no strength left in his own arms? He says that. And then question three is in verse three. He essentially says, How have you counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge? See, see Job felt like at this point that he lacked wisdom because he, he has a theology and he has a worldview and he understands and believes that the wicked are the ones that suffer and the righteous are the ones who prosper. And, and now the roles are reversed. He's righteous, but he's suffering. And then he sees the wicked in his town of, of us prospering all this. And so he feels like maybe I really don't understand the way things actually work like I've always thought they worked. Obviously, I lack wisdom here to discern and figure out how things really work, and maybe I lack wisdom on how to connect with God and and get wisdom from him or to get relief from him. He feels like the one who's lacking wisdom here. And he's, he's telling them, you're supposed to be here to counsel me. You're supposed to be here to give me wisdom right because that's one of the purposes of of christian counseling is to is to step in to a scenario into a relationship or a marriage or just a friendship or just into a person's life and you're there to impart biblical wisdom to them so they can figure out where they went wrong or how they've sinned and and maybe how they can get out of their scenario if they can indeed get out of it They've come to give him wisdom and he's saying, you have counseled me and you have counseled me and you have counseled me through all these speeches. Where is the wisdom? All I get from you is, is, is maggot and, and worm and you're hiding sin and, you know, that's all I get from you. They're supposed to be plentifully declaring sound knowledge to him giving him wisdom, giving him knowledge so that he can rightly respond to his suffering. They're supposed to be there to support him. And if they don't have the right words to give, then the ministry of presence is sufficient. You know, putting your arm around somebody helps. Maybe you don't have the right words in a situation. I mean, how on earth would you go in and counsel someone who lost all of his children overnight? There's not much you can say to be helpful. And if you say it was God's will, you may as well hit them over the face with this. Because in those moments, it's hard to understand God's will. Especially when you've lost family. That is a very unwise thing to say in those moments. Even though it is in accordance to god's will because god either permits things or he doesn't so somehow it's all tied to his will i get that we get that but is that helpful to tell somebody right after they've lost a family member oh it was god's will how would that be helpful it's all part of god's plan killing all my children it's part of god's plan If we're gonna reduce it down to that, I, I think I'd be the first person in my flesh to admit that maybe that's not a God I want to know. Right? And maybe that's a selfish thing to say, but is it not a selfish thing to say just to use these short, quick Christian answers, when we're trying to we're supposed to be there to bring compassion and and knowledge and and and, and wisdom and you know, I have no explanation for as to why all of your family members die. All I know is that a windstorm came in and knocked the house down. It looks like a natural disaster to me. Yes, God is sovereign over all things, but I am here not to try to give you answers. I am here to try to love you through this and pray for you. See, that's why his friends had come originally, but then it turned into a debate and a shouting match and a name-calling session. How have you counseled the guy here that can't seem to figure out what's going on? I don't have the wisdom, and how are you counseling me? How are you declaring to me sound knowledge? You're just trying to pin me down on sins I didn't commit. Question 4, verse 4a. With whose help have you uttered words? This was Job's way of, of saying, you know, you... You've come here to show me compassion and sympathy, and you claim to be representatives of God. But I'm not sure that you're speaking on behalf of God. Whose words are you actually actually uttering to me? And Job is not denying at all any of the doctrinal biblical truth that they were revealing. He's not contesting that. They're not speaking to Job those truths and everything else in a way that is consistent with a loving, merciful God. That's the problem. So in this instance, Job, I think, is, is thinking, you, you say here you're here as God's representative and you're speaking on his behalf, but you really sound like you're uttering the words of Satan. You're trying to, instead of help me and give me wisdom and encourage me, you are beating me up And that's what the devil does. Who's who's helping you speak to me? Is this the spirit of God or is this the spirit of the age? Or is this the spirit that roams to and fro looking for one to devour? That's what he's simply asking. Says the same thing really, just accentuates it in verse 4b, his fifth question. Whose breath has come out of you? You know, it was thought of in that day, and I think it should be thought of in this day too. That when someone speaks God's truth, that is God's breath and word coming through them. And and ironically, they spoke a lot of God's breath and truth, but they didn't have the heart of God behind it. Where is the mercy? Where is the genuine compassion? Where are the tears? See, Job's not convinced that they're actually representing God in this scenario or that his breath is being spoken through them. Job can discern the truth. He knows when they're saying truth, but there's no love behind any of this truth, which even though all truth is derived and comes from God, truth spoken in a way that does not capture the heart of God is is still truth, but it's a bludgeon. It's a hammer. It's a weapon. And that's what Job is capturing here in his critique. You claim to be here to help, but you're, you're not giving me wisdom. You're not helping. You claim to be here as God's representatives and speaking, and he's, he's breathing his word through you. Well, it is true that you have said some things about him and that he has revealed that are true, but you don't have God's heart behind it you don't have his love, you don't have his mercy, you don't have his compassion. So I'm not convinced Job is saying that you are actually here representing God and that you are ministering to me for God. And and Job was 110%, if you could be that high, right about them. Because I've said this before, later in, I think, chapter 42, God rebukes the friends, and says, you have not represented me. God does not say in that rebuke, you have not spoken truth. He does not say that because they have. But he says, you have not represented me as your servant Job has. Job has spoken in such a way at times where it has captured the essence of who I am. You have not. You've captured the essence of flesh and of the devil. So, the first four verses here, it's his critique, and, and, and we're seeing why he's upset with them. They have failed to impart the things to him that he needed, the compassion, the sympathy, the, the truth and love, the wisdom, the knowledge. They failed on every conceivable front, and he's, he's upset with them yet again because they've done that. And this is what they did all the time, right? There was never a point where they hit the mark. And this is probably why they pretty much stopped speaking now. They have failed in their attempt to convict him of hidden sin and to eviscerate and obliterate him. They have failed and they just stopped speaking, especially after Job gets done with Bildad here over three chapters. So that's the critique. Let's move to the second C. This is Job's counterclaim Bildad made some claims in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 25. And in verses 5 to 13 of our text, chapter 26, we see Job's counterclaim. He's countering to what Bildad has said. And this is where we see the second thing that Job was offended by. This is his counterclaim shows that he's offended by, by what Bildad had said. And it's funny because, again, Job does not deny the truths that Bildad spoke, but Job feels like in chapter 25 where Bildad gave his final speech, he feels like Bildad's words were inadequate and just too short and too sweet to actually capture who God is. Because remember, Bildad was trying to build a case for who God is. Oh, he's sovereign over all of this stuff. You can't even number his angel armies. I mean, you know, um, even the the daylight, the sun and the nightlight, the moon, they're impure compared to him. He's talking about his purity. He's talking about his sovereignty. He's building a case for God just to beat up Job. But Job isn't offended at the beating up part. He's offended at at the, the small case that Bildad makes for God's sovereign majesty. Essentially, in his counterclaim, what he's saying is that you have spoken about God, but you have fallen short in what you've said about God. And if you're going to speak about God, you need to do it the right way. See, in Job's mind, I think he believes, at least at this point, and I'm not sure that it's a right way to view people, but at this point, he thinks that those who say very little when describing God's sovereign majesty, because that's what Bildad was attempting to do in the previous chapter, anyone who gives his sovereign majesty a very short and sweet small treatment, they probably have a very small view of God. And maybe they ought not speak about God at all. In fact, the the text reminds me of a, a funny scene in an old silly 80s movie, Crocodile Dundee. Remember that one? I lived it. And there's that scene where the thugs are out there in front of a building. And, you know, this is back when it was really cool to wear Michael Jackson jacket. Um, By the Lord's grace, I escaped that coolness and never had one, although I did roll members only. Um, You know what I'm talking about here. got mine at Target. Um, but this thug has a red bandana on and I don't know if that meant that he was in a gang and he had a red Michael Jackson jacket on and he comes up to Dundee and, and Sue, who's the reporter who's there doing the story on him and, and he's, he's there to rob them and you know, he pulls out a switchblade, right? Give me your wallet, sucker. And she's like, hey, you need to give it to him. And he's just standing there like... And then he reaches down and pulls out like a one-foot-long Bowie knife. And what's the famous saying? That's not a knife. This is a knife, right? That's exactly what he says. And then he goes, and the guy's jacket falls off, which I love that scene. And the guy's just like urinating, It's the best way I could put that. Uh, but, but what's the parallel here? In a way, Bill Dad's little... Speech concerning God's sovereign majesty is like a little wimpy switchblade. And Job goes, that's not a speech about God's sovereign majesty. This is. And then in verses 5 to 13, he just unloads and talks about God's sovereign majesty. It really is a tit-for-tat situation here. It really is. And I don't think it's a battle of pride or views I just think that Job is like, you know what? If you're going to talk about God's sovereign majesty, don't pull out a wimpy switchblade. You need a bowie knife. And then he proceeds to make five, or he makes actually, Bildad makes five short but sweet statements, and they're truth, but it's simple and short and brief. Job counters with nine big, bold declarations concerning God's sovereign majesty. It's as if in 5 through 13, he's pulling out that bowie knife. You're going to talk about God? Let me show you how to talk about God. (laughs) He makes, as I said, nine declarations. The first one we see in verse 5. And of course, he's using poetry because most of the book is written in that fashion. Verse 5, the dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Pardon me. So the first declaration that he makes, it it carries the idea here that the dead, both great and small. Now, now, we can pause there. What would the great dead be versus the small dead? It would be like a king who has died versus a serf, right? Or some humble, meager peasant in a village. That would be the small person who's died. The big person would be a king, so, so, right, the dead tremble under the waters, of, and they're the, the dead, both great and small, whether it be a king or a peasant, they all tremble under the greatness of God's sovereign majesty. That's his point. Bildad, you have stated something about God's sovereign majesty, but let me take it a little deeper here. His sovereign majesty, Bildad, it actually terrorizes all the dead, great and small, as they await divine judgment. Dead kings, dead peasants, it doesn't matter. (coughs) They all have this one thing in common, Bildad. They all tremble in fear before Almighty God. And whenever you see the term Almighty in Job or anywhere else, that is a title that captures his omnipotence, his all power. So this is what he comes right out of the gate and declares. You said that God is, is, he has a sovereign majesty about him. He's got angel armies. Let me take it further. I'll start by talking about the dead, who aren't people we normally talk about. They're already dead. Those who are down in feel awaiting judgment, they tremble in terror at his sovereign majesty. That's his first declaration. And and why does he make that point? I don't know. Sheol is talked about so much in Job. Maybe that's why. I think the word appears there in, in Job probably about six to eight times. And then he does talk about Sheol in his next declaration, number two, verse six. Sheol is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. We know that Sheol is the place of the dead according to the Old Testament. It is now. It, it still has a New Testament relevance. It still exists. And when we think of Sheol today, we have a little different view of it than the Old Testament view because Jesus changed it when He died on the cross and was buried and rose from the grave. He, he changed what Sheol is for today. And today, when we think of Sheol, it is the place where unbelievers go to await judgment. Now, some would call Sheol Hades. They would call it hell, and that's okay. But essentially, when we think of Sheol now, post, you know, finished work of Christ, it is a holding cell or holding place for the unbelieving dead. And I think that hell is a a stage that comes in later. You know, uh, we, we, we see it in Revelation 20 where it talks about the lake of fire, and that's final judgment. I see that as being more like the hell that we think of. Uh, and Sheol is as is a, is a kind of hell for unbelievers until judgment, until they're cast in the lake of fire. Think of it like that. But in any case, it is a place that is down beneath the surface, Job 7.9. Um, it's subterranean, below the surface. Um, it is described in, in Job and in other places as a place of no escape. It has uh, gates that are locked or bars that are barred, um, it has a prison guard, and the prison guard is not the devil as we have been falsely taught, thank you Dante and others, the prison guard in Sheol is death, death keeps people there, so it has, a, it has, it, it has cells, it has a prison guard, and the prison guard is death, and death cannot be defeated by human effort, right, we know this, it can only, it's only been defeated by Christ. So those who are outside of Christ who are in Sheol have no way to get themselves out of that death and out of that incarceration. And Job actually does a good job of describing Sheol in Job 10, verse 21, chapter 17, verses 13 to 16, and even Isaiah chapter 38, 10 refers to Sheol. Now we can talk about, so Sheol's this place of the dead, subterranean, where unbelievers are held. And then we have Abaddon. What Abaddon is translated as, and it's Apollon in Greek, but in Hebrew it's Abaddon, and it means place of destruction, place of destruction. And that is the meaning here in our text. Job is saying that the place of the dead, Sheol, where destruction, Abaddon, occurs, he's saying it is not hidden from God's sovereign majesty, it is not hidden from God's sight. These sub... This subterranean place where this destruction occurs, it, is, it, it may be hidden in the deep recesses of the earth, invisible to the naked eye, but it is not, it, it, it is thoroughly naked and uncovered before God who is sovereign in his majesty and sovereign in his, in his, um, in his presence and sovereign in his sight. God sees into Sheol, sees Abaddon, sees all things. That's his second declaration. If, if, if people were to think that, uh, okay, maybe, maybe people would have a loose view of, of God's omnipresence and maybe they would think, well, okay, God is everywhere, but there's a few places where he's not. He's not in hell. He's not in Sheol. He's not where a badin occurs. Job is saying he is because he transcends and is, is far beyond anything that we can ever imagine. Uh, And you've heard me preach this before. And uh, we have been falsely taught by Dante and others that the thing that makes hell so scary is the devil. No, that hell scares the devil. Hell is a place of torment for the devil. It's not a place where the devil rules and reigns supreme and goes around with a pitchfork poking sinners. What makes hell terrifying is exactly what Job has just said. It is naked and laid bare before the sovereign God. Hell is terrifying because that is where God is present to exact his justice and wrath. That's what makes it terrifying. And that is essentially what Job is saying. His sovereign majesty is infinite and so great, he is even in the deepest recesses of the earth, handing and doling out his divine wrath and punishment. That's what he's saying. Declaration 3, verse 7, speaking of God, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. I think that's an uh, an amazing statement. He's saying God in his sovereign majesty and sovereign power, he stretched out the heavens like a tent on a pole. And the northern skies are, are essentially the uppermost highest point of the universe. And he says God has taken the earth and he suspends it over nothing. It is, it, it, have you noticed that, right? You know, like how the planets and stars and everything, all the celestial bodies, everything in the universe sits perfectly in its spot. There's nothing keeping the earth where it's at. It's not like the globe in, in world history or in your science high school class where it has a brass device holding it with two pinions, one above and one below. The earth literally hangs on nothing and is perfectly placed. If it's slightly closer to the sun, we're incinerated. If it's slightly further away, we freeze to death. And he is saying that God has created all things, the furthest points, the northern skies, the furthest reaches of the universe... And he has just taken the earth and suspended it in mid-space. It's pretty amazing. You know, how many of us marvel at the universe? Have you ever really even stopped and considered its immensity? It's it's unbelievable. And how often... Have we stopped to marvel at the God who created it with a few words? How immense is God? If we marvel at this universe and how this earth hangs in space and how every other planet hangs in space, some of them perfectly so you can have a habitat, the billions and billions of galaxies, the trillions of stars, when we marvel. At this universe, it's pretty intimidating. It's pretty mind-blowing. There have been times where I've been out in nature where I didn't have a bunch of interfering light like street lights and all that, city lights. And, and, and then you can see the haze of the Milky Way. And you sit there and you marvel at its vastness. And you're, when you're talking about the Milky Way, you're talking about one solar system. And we marvel at the universe, and we marvel at how the planets are perfectly made, and how they hang on nothing, and how the sun does its job, and the moon does its job. And we just marvel at all of this, and it's, it's awe-inspiring. But how often do we consider the God who made it all, who spoke it all into existence? Surely the one who created this immense universe must be infinitely immense, in power and grandeur and majesty must be immeasurably uh, 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 immense in comparison to his creation. Stop and think about that. That's what Job wants Bildad to stop and think about because, you know, he just ripped off a few sentences. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. There's, there's, There's nothing holding the earth in its place except for God Himself. Declaration 4, verse 8, He binds up the waters in His thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. Now, when we think of clouds, I always think of cotton balls, right? Because a cloud is like a gigantic cotton ball in the sky, moving across the sky. Sometimes they just kind of sit there and hang, but a lot of times they're moving across the sky. When we went to Kentucky, there were, was, was, and this is the middle of summer, by the way, this is July when we were there, the cloud, the skies were always cloudy, but the, the, the clouds move so fast, I mean, you could see them moving, they're hauling. I think they're trying to get to Tennessee, I don't know. But when we think of clouds, they're these collections of vapor. That the sun refracts on and and creates this beautiful color of white and these other shades. And clouds are just big bits of cotton moving across the sky. And did you know, because he's he's speaking of rain clouds here. Do you know how much a gallon of water weighs? 8.34 pounds. That's pretty heavy for a gallon. So if you have a five-gallon jug that we use on these water machines, you're doing that times five, and that's why they're so hard to wrestle up onto the container, right? Water is actually pretty heavy. A gallon of water is, you know, almost eight and a half pounds. Now, some, according to my research, some thunderstorm clouds contain enough water to fill 275 million one-gallon jugs. Okay. That's two point three billion pounds of water in one thunderstorm cloud. How do they stay in the air? Do you ever stop and think about that? How do they not split in half under all that weight? Now we know they do on occasion, don't they? Because that's when they start that's when you that's when you have a downpour. And I don't think that's a splitting in half, literally, it's just the water is released. But how does something that weighs 2.3 billion pounds stay in the air and move across the sky with utter grace? How does that happen? How is that possible? Do we understand how powerful gravity is? Right? The older I get, the closer I get to the ground. Anyone else feel that way? Gravity is pulling this huge stomach it's just going to be a pile of moisture. It just, I, gravity is, is not a friend. Okay? It's not, the bigger you get, it becomes less of a friend. You know, when I was Ralph Macchio in high school, I could, I could bend gravity. People almost had to hold me down. It was like I was filled with helium. But, you know, at 52 years old and 220 pounds, those days are long gone. But you have gravitational force pulling on everything, all the way up to the edge of the stratosphere, right? because when you parachute from the stratosphere, you still fall to earth at terminal velocity. So you have this massive gravitational force and you have 2.3 billion pounds of water floating around in a cotton ball, <laughs> okay, okay, I, 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 don't, I don't understand how that works. How do these heavy rain clouds stay airborne? How do they not tear in half? How do they not split open? Job's answer is God. That's how. That's how. He sovereignly binds up the waters in his thick clouds. He sovereignly keeps them from splitting under the weight of all of that water. God floats the clouds and keeps them there as long as he wants them there that's essentially what job is saying just to capture the sovereign majesty and power of god and by the way god sovereignly created and controls the seasons genesis 1:14 psalm 74 verses 16 to 17 psalm 104:19 god sovereignly raises the sun every morning psalm 104 verse 19 God sovereignly causes the wind to blow. When you get that nice cool breeze in the summertime, and we do get one, that delta breeze comes in, that's the Lord being a blessing to you. When the hot air blows in, that's Him trying to get your attention. Sovereignly causes the wind to blow. Exodus fourteen twenty-one, Job 28, 25 to 27, Psalm 78, 26, Jonah 1, 4, Matthew 8, 26 to 27, Mark 439 to 41, and so on. They're in your bulletin. God sovereignly created and controls the entire water cycle, Job 5.10, Job 26, 8 to 9, Psalm 135, verse 7, and several other verses. God sovereignly sends the morning dew, Proverbs 3, 19 and 20. God sovereignly sends lightning, Job 1.16, Job 37, verse 15. We just sang Who Tells Every Lightning Bolt Where to Go? And that was actually a Chris Tomlin song when he actually wrote really good songs. Yeah, I don't care for his music today. It's too mainstream. God sovereignly sends loud thunderstorms. You're wondering why the sky is exploding? God is speaking. 1 Samuel 12, 17 to 18, Jeremiah 10, 13. God sovereignly sends hail and snow and ice and frost. Psalm 148, verse 8, Job 38, 22 to 30. God sovereignly nourishes the earth so that it produces crops and fruit and every other abundant thing. Leviticus 26, verse 4, Deuteronomy eleven ten 10 to 15, and so on and so forth. A whole bunch of verses there. God sovereignly sends the scorching sun. Genesis eight twenty two, Jonah 4, 8. God sovereignly withholds rain, causing drought. 1 Kings 8, 35 to 36, 2 Chronicles 6, 26 and 27, and so on and so forth. What is Job teaching us? What is the Word of God teaching us? He controls the weather. He's over it all. I mean, if God controls all the affairs of creation, then he certainly has sovereign control over. The weather and the clouds and the rain clouds and everything else. Our God is so immense. Declaration 5, verse 9, He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it His cloud. What is He saying here? God sovereignly whips together clouds and spreads them across the sky so that you can't see the face of the moon and the other celestial bodies, stars, planets, distant solar systems, what have you. And I like the detail. He says full moon, which means what at night? The brightest the moon can be. When it's a full moon, the entire surface of it that we can see is reflecting the light of the sun at night. And so a full moon is, is pretty powerful, right? I mean, it tends to light up the sky. And he's saying God controls the clouds and sometimes covers the, clouds, uh, the sky with clouds so much so that you can't even see the full moon. Declaration 6, verse 10, God has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters and uh, at the boundary between light and darkness. Now, this is an amazing statement, and it's a little confusing, but it's really amazing. It's actually an amazingly accurate scientific statement about the earth's round shape. The Hebrew word for circle means horizon Okay. He has inscribed a horizon on the face of the waters. That's the meaning here. What Job is saying, and I think that Job had some experience on, on sea, at the sea, or out to sea. I don't know if he was a sailor per se, uh, but they, they had shipping in his day, apparently, and he had experience on the seas, because he's giving a scientific analysis based on his own experience at sea. What he's essentially saying is that. While he was out to sea on the face of the waters, he was looking at the horizon, right? And here's the deal. When you're at sea, I don't know if you've ever been on a cruise, but if you're at sea and you're at the stern and even at, even at the, the back of the boat, when you look out, you can see the curvature of the earth. It's gradual, but it's there. And what Job is saying is that when he was out to sea, Looking at the horizon, he could see land in the distance. And the way that the sunlight was shining on the dark land and on the bright blue water created a kind of phenomenon that really kind of revealed the curvature of the earth. And so he's, he's out sailing. How does this guy know, with the exception of, I guess, divine revelation, but how does somebody in Job's day, thousands of years before Christ, know that the earth is round? Well, he says it here in Scripture, but it's because of his own scientific analysis. He's at sea, he can see the curvature, especially under certain circumstances. And didn't Solomon say something very similar, right? Speaking of wisdom, he said wisdom was there when God drew a circle on the face of the deep. Proverbs 8.27, Solomon is proclaiming the roundness of the earth there. Just as Job is, Isaiah did the same thing. God sits above the circle of the earth. Isaiah 40, verse 22. I just have to apologize to you if you are a flat earther. Time to stop shopping at cookies. You know what I'm saying, don't you? (laughs) It is round. It's a globe. Job is telling us this based on his own scientific analysis. This was his own personal scientific observation. He knew it without a doubt that God had sovereignly created and was sovereignly sustaining a round earth, not a flat earth. Thank you, Job. And Bildad's probably thinking, no, it's flat. I know it's flat. I was on a camel one day riding and it just looked really flat. Declaration 7, verse 11, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at God's rebuke. Now, this is a figurative expression for the towering mountains. And and sometimes when you're in the midst of towering mountains, it looks like those mountains are holding up the sky, doesn't it? Like giant arms holding up the sky. We went through Colorado on our trip back and you are riding right alongside the Rockies, and they are impressive. And they, they have more peaks at 15,000 feet and above in Colorado than they do, I think, anywhere else in the world. Our tallest mountain is, which mountain is it? Is it McKinley? Whitney. And it's the size of one of their 15,000-foot height mountains. So over there, they have more per capita than anywhere else. And what he's saying here... The pillars of heaven tremble. Those are the mountains. They look like pillars that are holding up the heavens, the skies. These majestic mountain ranges, the pillars of heaven, they do what? They tremble at God's rebuke. They become metaphorically astounded whenever God lifts his sovereign majestic voice. That's what he's saying. And uh, he has no experience with what happened at Mount Sinai because the law was given way after Job lived. But if you know anything about when the law was given at Sinai, you know the whole mountain and earth shook violently when God spoke His law. Exodus 19, verse 18, and this is even reiterated in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26. Psalm 46, verse 6 says, The nations rage." The kingdoms totter, but when God utters His voice, the earth melts. That's amazing. Sounds like Psalm 2 that we did our devotional on last Sunday. Psalm 104, verse 32 tells us that that all God has to do is look at the earth and it trembles. All He has to do is look at it. He doesn't have to speak. He can just look at it a certain way and it shakes. And that psalm also says that if God reaches out His sovereign, almighty hand and touches the mountains, what do they do? They smoke. There's your wildfire. Job is essentially saying that God's sovereign majesty and holiness and purity burns so hot and so brightly that when He utters a few words, the pillars of heaven, the mountain ranges shake The earth melts, these sorts of things happen. Why is that? God is so holy and so pure that He has literally called in Hebrews 12, 29, a consuming fire. Why is it that mortal man cannot stand in the literal presence of this God? Why can't He do that? He is turned into a burnt matchstick if He does this. Why? Because God's holiness and purity and sovereignty is so intense that it will consume any mortal man. This is what Job is is teaching here. Declaration 8, verse 12, By his power he stilled the sea. By his understanding he shattered Rahab. God sovereignly calms the seas when their waves are violently churning and he's the one who causes the waves to violently churn. He stirs up the sea, he calms the seas. He does this by his sovereign might and power, he is the almighty one. In other words, Job is saying his sovereign majesty, his sovereignty, he controls the seas. And then he says, and it is by his sovereign knowledge or wisdom that Rahab is shattered. Rahab does not refer to a person here. It's not the one who helped the spies. Rahab is a term that was used when describing natural forces that bring disaster on the earth during Job's day. What would the modern version of Rahab be? mother nature, right? Job is saying that even the terrifying natural forces, Rahab, that sometimes overpower creation, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions. We just had one of those undersea, I think, yesterday. Um, Tsunamis, floods, droughts, tornadoes, hurricanes, wildfires, shirako winds, and so on. All of these Rahab, all of these expressions of quote-unquote Mother Nature, these devastating things that ravage creation, he's saying they're all subjected to the sovereign majesty of God. That's what he's saying. Mother Nature submits to this God. And then lastly, Declaration 9, verse 13 By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Wind represents God's breath or word. That's what it represents here. By his breath, the heavens were made fair. When the heavens or sky is is cloudy, Job is saying the sovereign God simply breathes and speaks and it is Made fair or cleared. If you have a completely cloudy sky one moment and then the next moment it's completely clear, it's God who cleared the sky with the breath of his own voice. It is also the hand of the sovereign God, uh, by the hand of the sovereign God that the clouds are pierced and vanish from the sky like a fleeing serpent. That's what he means there. Sometimes you'll look at the Clouds and they look like a snake up there, snaky little clouds moving around. That's what Job is saying. Ultimately, in this ninth declaration, Job is saying Almighty God controls the skies above. He is the sovereign air traffic controller. The skies are His. They belong to Him. That's what he's saying. There they are. Nine big, bold, declarations concerning God's sovereign majesty. You've got your little switchblade, Bill Dad, Check this out. Boom. Who spoke in a bigger way concerning God? Job did, right? And what do these things reveal about Job, what he has expressed here? I think they reveal that he had a, a big view of God. He had a large view view of God. I'm not suggesting that Bildad didn't have a large view of God, but if we're going to compare speeches, hmm. Now let's look at our last C, and I think this is where it's almost comical. This is Job's consternation. We see it in the last verse, verse 14. You know what consternation is, right? It's like an anxious confoundment that's what consternation means. And verse 14 is like an interruption. Job was on a roll, wasn't he? Don't you think that, Doesn't it feel like he was on a roll? He's just busting out all this, these awesome statements and declarations about, about God's sovereign majesty. Oh, you've said some things about God, Bill Dad, but check this out. Here's my bowie knife. Boom! He makes these awesome statements. And then all of a sudden, he kind of interrupts himself, kind of hits pause. Why? Because he becomes filled with consternation. As he's speaking about the sovereign majesty of God, he becomes filled with consternation. Now he's hesitant to say anything more because now he feels like what he was charging Bildad with. What I'm saying falls short. <clears throat> he begins to realize that the sovereign majesty of God is is infinitely larger than his own understanding, infinitely bigger than his own declarations. That's what Job does. Have you ever been in a moment where you were speaking about God then realized I am not representing him the way that he is? I think I'll shut up. That's what happened here. He's on a roll and then he's filled with a sense of what I'm saying falls vastly short of what he's worthy of. That's what happens here. I think that he would have agreed maybe with Spurgeon, I put it in your bulletin. No heart can measure, no tongue can utter the half of the greatness of Jehovah. And I would take it further. 1% of the greatness of Jehovah. No heart could even conceive that. He would agree with Spurgeon here. And he interrupts himself, and then he he looks at Bildad, and he's like, you know what? Yeah, my view is bigger than yours, obviously, but hold on a second. The things I just declared to you, he says, behold, these are but the outskirts of God's ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him, exclamation point, but the thunder of his power. Who could possibly understand this? This is what he says. Job is essentially confessing that the truths he just spoke were nothing more than the outskirts or a small whisper concerning the sovereign majesty of God. He asks, who could possibly fathom the thunder or greatness of God's sovereign power? No one can fully comprehend him. No one can fully comprehend it. I like what Steve Lawson said. He said, the extraordinary truths which Job had just stated about the supremacy of God were only a fraction of the total magnitude of his divine greatness. All that Job had cited about God's Unrivaled power over the grave and nature were a fragmentary outline of the infinite, incomprehensible sovereignty of God. Now, I, 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 I love and appreciate how Job boldly declared what he understood about the sovereign majesty of God. Aren't you thankful that the Holy Spirit spoke this through him? Because this is an amazing section of Scripture. I'm glad that Job... was was willing enough to go ahead and step out on a ledge and share what he understood about God. I love his humility. I love his sober-mindedness. He's not pretending here to know everything there is to know about God. He freely admits that his own declarations were merely the outskirts, (laughs) merely a small whisper of who God is. And what has Job done yet again for us? He has set a righteous example for Christians. He has. Like Job, we should never pretend and act like we know everything there is to know about God. Our knowledge of God is outskirts. And like Job, we should also be ready and willing to boldly declare what we do understand about God. Amen? Be prepared to give an account or to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have. 1 Peter 3.15 We ought to be ready and willing to say what we know to be true about God, but we should never pretend to know it all. I made the mistake years ago of debating a guy on the doctrine of election and acted like I knew everything there was to know about it. And then by the time I was done, I realized, Phil, you don't even know the outskirts. We need to understand something this morning. Let me encourage you. Firstly, God is infinite, and therefore He is impossible to be fully known by finite creatures. Do you understand what I just said? God is infinite. You are a finite creature. In order to understand the infinite God, you yourself have to be infinite. You're not. You're finite. Only God can fully know God. Amen? Don't feel like a dumbbell if you don't have a lot of knowledge of God. Because guess what? Nobody has a lot of knowledge of God. What we know and possess is given by grace and it is the outskirts. A faint whisper of who God is. I've heard too many Christians beat themselves up over, I just don't know about, enough about the Word. I don't know enough about God. Nobody knows enough about God. Nobody. Nobody. I want you to understand something, and, and I think Christians make this mistake equally. They think that when they finally go to be in the presence of the Lord, they'll know everything there is to know about God. Wrong. Wrong. In 10 billion years, that Christian in God's eternal presence will still be on the outskirts of who he is. You don't become God when you die and go be with God. Therefore, you can understand his infinity. You will never, ever, ever fully comprehend and know God and understand him. Never. You can't. You can't. And so don't be upset with yourself for not knowing all there is to know about God. In fact, I'll go out and say it even further here. It is not essential for us to know everything there is to know about God. It is not essential. It is, however, essential for us to know and believe what God has clearly revealed in Scripture, namely His law and His gospel. That's what you need to know. And that He has, in fact, made perfectly clear in His Word. But you do not need to know everything there is to know about God. So it's okay, dummies. The law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, describes God's holy character and what He requires of His created creatures, us. Absolute perfection. Good luck. The Gospel describes the person and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ He alone met God's standard of perfection through perfect obedience to the law. He also died on a cross to pay for our transgressions, every sin, past, present, and future. He was, what, buried in a rich man's tomb, and he rose from the grave on the third day, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell. It is essential for us to understand the law and to understand the gospel. That is what is essential, because without understanding those two things, there is no salvation. Well, I can't be saved if I don't know everything there is to know about God. Then, in fact, no one can be saved. But you have to know what God has revealed in His law. You're a sinner. You have to know what God has revealed in the gospel. Christ died for sinners. And if you believe in Him, you shall be saved. That's what you need to know. That's what you need to know. It is essential for us to not... Just know the law in a sense and, how it, it, and what its purpose is to convict us of sin. It is essential for us to know the gospel absolutely, but it is essential for us to believe the gospel. Because guess what? There's a whole heck of a lot of people that know the gospel but don't believe it. You can know without believing. You can have it here but not here. We don't want to simply know that the law calls us and condemns us as sinners or know that Christ died to save sinners like us, lawbreakers. We don't want to just know that. We need to believe it and confess it with our lips. That's salvation. Why is this so essential for us to know and understand the gospel? Because there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven but the name of Jesus given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 is one of my favorite verses. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians when he was in Corinth, he was only interested in knowing and understanding one essential truth. What was that essential truth that he wanted to know and understand more than anything else? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2. That's the goal. Do you believe this essential truth? Jesus Christ and Him crucified to pay for your sin. Do you believe it? Because if you don't, nothing else matters. Your knowledge of other things might serve you in life, but it will do nothing for you in death. Know the essentials. The law says you are a sinner. The gospel says God saves sinners through Christ, believe the essential gospel, and be saved. And from this point, you can begin to grow in your knowledge of God as you study His word, as you participate in the means of grace, but make no mistake, you will never know everything there is to know about the sovereign majesty of God. In 10 billion years you will still be on the outskirts. And that's okay. Because you don't have to know God fully to know God. You don't have to know God fully to know His presence and the joy that's in His presence and the pleasures that are in His eternal presence. You see, when you, if you're a Christian and when you go to be with the Lord, you're not going to be concerned with learning and knowledge and trying to figure Him out and trying to figure out His will, you'll be too captivated by His glory, immersed in His eternal joy, being pleasured in the most holy, perfected way so that there are no cares and concerns. Only God, only Christ, only the Spirit of God. You will be consumed by His majesty. You won't be worried about what more you need to learn.